We are continuing in our studies in Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 in its entirety is the story that you, if you've been in church in Sunday school most of your life, you've heard this story all your life. It's about the three Hebrew children there in Babylon, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they refused the king's command and did not worship the image. They were brought to trial. They took a stand, and then they were uh, summarily executed. The problem is the execution didn't work. The Lord delivered them from the fiery furnace. The greatest preacher in this particular um, passage, it's a contest between the spokesman for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whichever one it was, or maybe it was all three in chorus, or Nebuchadnezzar, who is the greater preacher of the things of the Lord. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're only going to read the last two-thirds beginning in verse 13. That's long enough. But uh, pay attention to the narrative and uh, see if you can pick up some of these things, especially what is said at their trial as they are before Nebuchadnezzar, and then what Nebuchadnezzar says when the whole ordeal is over. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be, be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. O king, but if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace." Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning furnace." Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the fiery furnace he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. 
And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Then Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as I said, you know the story, but I'm going to tell a little bit of the first part of the story so we get a little bit of background. I'm going to kind of summarize it. First of all, we have Nebuchadnezzar. We've talked a lot about him the last couple of weeks, the great king of that Babylonian culture and empire that had accumulated literally over the centuries going all the way back to the Tower of Babel and the building of Nimrod, the great mighty man of the Old Testament. It was a culture. It was a kingdom. It was a a people, a king that was set up to be mightier and mightier and mightier. Last week we saw in in the vision that the king had, that Daniel interpreted, that Babylon was the head of gold. It was the great empire, and from it would descend other empires, finally to the Roman Empire in the period of the Roman Empire rule over the the kingdoms of this world. There would come the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the eternal king, the king whose kingdom shall have no end, that is Christ. So we've got this picture of of the days to come. Meanwhile, sometime after Nebuchadnezzar had this vision, he either uh, was impressed by the vision or influenced by the vision, or maybe he had other reasons, but for whatever reason, he erected this huge image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's about 90 feet, and about 9 feet at the base. Uh, a, A very intimidating large image. It was certainly to his own exploits. Usually that's what the great kings did. They would have an inscription on the base. They would tell all the things they've done. The thing at this point in his life he was most proud of is he had conquered the southern kingdoms. It had all this up around Persian and Medo-Persian, all these areas and Assyria and ancient Assyria, but he had come on down through the Fertile Crescent past Canaan and gone all the way down into Egypt and Ethiopia. And when he had done that, when he had conquered, conquered that southern region of the known world, he, he felt as though he was entitled to some recognition. And so he erected this huge uh, golden statue. Might have been solid gold, could have easily been. They had enough gold in Babylon to do that, but it's probably just plated with gold, but it was, it was dazzling. And in so doing, he, the Bible says in this passage about uh, nine times, it says... He set it up. He established it. He put it in place. Uh, And then he himself, in talking to the three Hebrew children, as we saw in our text, he himself said, I made it. So ten times in this one passage, there is credit given, or he gives himself credit, arrogates to himself this magnificent accomplishment of erecting this huge, colossal, golden image. 
There was no doubt this was a government building. It was set up by the king, it was financed by the king's treasury, and it was there to to testify to the greatness of Babylon and the greatness of the king. But in the old days in antiquities, it was hard to magnify the government without magnifying the God of that particular kingdom, that particular realm. So there's no question that this image also bore some inscription or some manifestation, some image, some carving, some kind of, of, of construction that, that magnified the God of the Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom. So it was an object not only of worship, it was set up by the, by the church. It was set up by the priest. It was set up by the people who handled the worship services of this particular kingdom. So we have an image here which has been set up and deliberately put in place. Here's a good word for it. Established. He established the image. And in that establishment, he had mixed church and state. He had mixed the, the, the worship of God, or a gods, or God worship, with government Government power, government influence, government operations, government uh, power. He'd put the two together and combined them. That was not unusual in the ancient world. It was not unusual at all for the king's court to include the priests and that the state religion was the dominant religion. But it just simply said the issue in church-state relations is sovereignty. Who is ultimately in control? whose word ultimately is the authority. Are they equal? Is there one above the other? And if so, which one is above the other? This is church and state. This is God and Caesar. And, and I'm not going to be too specific in this little message this morning, but I want you to think for me, if you would, at 8 o'clock in the morning. And you make your own application. I'll be suggestive enough to most of you will catch it of what we're talking about. You couldn't have a more uh, appropriate, pertinent, immediate sermon for our day and age than this because we have seen now the establishment of a massive government. And this is exactly what it does here. If you see that in setting up this government, We've got all the apparatus, and they, they're named here. They're called uh, satraps and prefects and governors and counselors and treasurers and justices and magistrates. Uh, and uh, it, it's a fascinating study to know what these are, but let me just give it to you in brief. This covers the whole range of governmental authority and administration, and it goes all the way down to the depths of each department of state. In other words, what we have here is a vast administrative state. We have the military wing, we have the, the judicial, the justice wing, we have the welfare wing, we have all the different parts of a giant, massive, bureaucratic, administrative state that claims now, in the erecting of this image, sovereignty over all the people. Because the next thing you see, that the congregation is made up of people of every language and uh, and, and of every nation. And by the way, that, that term uh, is used in Revelation uh, seven times when he talks about all the peoples of the world. Now, in the book of Revelation, it refers to the peoples of the world who were 
gathered around the throne of God, worshiping the Lamb of God, and in some other context as well. But, but it, it it's not only um, covers the government apparatus, but this particular uh, ceremony that's called for uh, is multinational. And it's a worship service. You bow down and you worship and you serve. It's one thing to come and bow down. And by the way, the word bow down means to be prostrate, to lie down face down in absolute uh, dependence and, and homage toward that particular image and what it represents, the king and the gods. And so it's multicultural in that there's Semitic, Persian, and Greek forms of music and instrumentation. You want to talk about a great worship service. This one right here may be about as good as you'll find anywhere in the Bible. If you want a good worship service that really moves you, you need one like this. Maybe the one around the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai would rival it, but I don't think so. This, this was a universal worship service. There was unity here. There was joy. There was exuberance. There was extravagance. There was everything you could ask for in a moving, emotional, meaningful worship service. And that's exactly what was, uh, was, was put up. And the reason we know that is because the different instruments are named and they're of different backgrounds. Some are Persian, some are Semitic, and some of the instruments are Greek. And there's a big question about, okay, how did we get Greek instruments this early in history? But the Greeks very early developed music and their music and, and, and a lot of other Greek culture eventually caught on, but it, there had been already precursors of their culture that had gone out into the ancient world. There's a massive mixture in the ancient world here of worship service. There was a sense in which they all tried to be unique, but yet they were all alike. When you get right down to it, it's just basically pretty simple. It's God and it's Caesar. It's the kingdom of God and his Christ, his anointed, his king, or it's the kingdom of man. It's, it's king, whether his king rules uh, individually as a single monarch or whether this king is collective man in some kind of socialist system. doesn't matter if it's individual man in a godless monarchy or tyranny or dictatorship, or whether it is collective man in some scheme of an oligarchy of a, of a socialist type government. doesn't matter. It's still man. It's still human. It's still man-centered, it's still naturalistic, it's still materialistic, and it is still, in the final analysis, it is a beast that consumes all, and it has at its side at all times an antichrist, someone who is not only against God, as the beast is, but it's an antichrist that is against Christ specifically, fighting against the actual virgin-born God-man specifically. Doesn't matter if it's, if it's Islam, or whether it's some other pagan system or communism, it's something that is systematic and it's opposed to God and His Christ. And they were commanded to fall down in worship. Now in this case, they did that. The scripture says they, you know, it's a repetition in here. It talks about what they, He set them up, He ordered them to do it. When you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and all the musical instruments, in other words, when the worship service has its call to worship and it's gathering music, then you gather and you start to worship and then eventually it brings you 
to bow down and then to rise up and go serve. And that's exactly what a worship service is supposed to do. This is a pagan worship service, but it involves the same elements of, of bowing down and serving. And this is what they did down in uh, the verses just before we started reading. Um, they, um, all the peoples, nations, and languages, that's that revelation of, as well, fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and here it is again, had set up. He had established. So, so all they had to do was to bow down and worship. Now, uh, beginning there in verse 8 of the passage, we have the story of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were kind of the leadership group in a lot of ways because Chaldea was the one area that had dominated and been part of Nebuchadnezzar's background which brought them to power against all the other powers and eventually established the great kingdom, the great empire. So the Chaldeans, with a lot of influence, come to um, Nebuchadnezzar and tell him that there were three Hebrews that did not bow down in this worship service. Uh, my guess is they didn't even attend it, but whatever, somehow it's known they didn't bow down. They didn't follow all the king's orders. And so basically they come. Now the king, if you read between the lines, the king has always greatly admired these men. He's put them in charge of the provinces around about. These were the men that Daniel had suggested be put in these high uh, level administrative posts. And the Chaldeans were no doubt envious of them. They had a perpetual hate for them. And so here was a good chance to really get them in trouble. And so they, they told on them. They brought in a witness to say these men did not bow down. And an interesting thing um, that, that happens, and it begins in our text, is that Nebuchadnezzar uh, conducted a trial. He didn't take their word for it. He'd just take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and immediately throw them in the fiery furnace, which was the threat. If you didn't bow down, you were going to immediately be thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, by the way, sovereigns prepare fire for disobedient rebels. You think about that. That's what God does. Hell is prepared for the devil and his angels and those that do not come to God and trust in God and believe in God and his Christ are thrown into a place not prepared for them, prepared for the others, but because they follow that same rebel bent, that's where they end up. And it's a broad road and it leads to destruction. So the fiery furnace was prepared and ready to go for all the rebels because that's basically what it amounted to. This was rebellion. This was treason. This was against the king. And so the king conducts a trial and I think that uh, he, he wanted to give these men a second chance. Perhaps you didn't understand the decree. Perhaps you didn't hear the decree. Perhaps you were busy and couldn't make it to the great worship service. I think Nebuchadnezzar was ready to, to let these men off the hook. Much like Pilate wanted to let Jesus off the hook, but just couldn't really do it because he was bound by the law of the superiority. And Nebuchadnezzar was bound by his own law. His men made sure that he followed it. And so now he, he brings them in for trial. And in this, this trial, I think Nebuchadnezzar may have suspected the Chaldeans for jealous, but they come in as um, a team accusing them of treason 
And they're saying that he paid, that, that these Hebrew children paid no attention and did not serve or worship. And the three Hebrews, as they stand before, uh, he wants to know, is it true, O Shadrach, that you did not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? And he gives them an, a couple of if propositions. If you are ready then, when you hear the sound to worship, then everything will be well and good. But if you do not worship, you're immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then he offers a scoff, a mock. At this time, he was, Nebuchadnezzar was extremely proud and puffed up. And he said, who is the God? And if he thinks of his pagan gods as being those that have been subjected and enslaved and are already vassal servants of him of all the other neighboring countries, the answer to that question is, well, there's no God. Assyria doesn't have a God. The Persians don't have a God. The Canaanites, the Egypt, nobody has a God that can, that can overrule you. And so that's, uh, that was his scoff. But notice Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. There's no need to really bring the question to trial because they had already made up their mind. That's the most remarkable thing. This is, this is the essence of the lesson today. And that is that before they got to this crisis moment, this threatening, scary, literally life-threatening moment, they had already had a resolve of what they believed. And what they believed was pretty simple. It was found over in several places, but certainly predominantly and first in Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments, just fresh off Sinai, fresh from the lips of Moses. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They've already come out of one slavery. They're contemplating a new slavery. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And before me means not prior to me only, but in before me, before my face. There's no competing gods. If you start to compare God to something, you're not comparing apples with apples. You're not keeping a one-for-one -one correlation. There is no comparison. There's nothing that stands to compare with the true God. That was the first commandment. The second one is you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Is that pretty clear? You think the law of God applies to this situation in Babylon? I mean, when in Rome do as Rome, well, when in Babylon do as Babel, you know, would that be the principle of operation? No, they had made up their mind from their youth that they had one God, the true God, and he was going to serve him. They were going to serve him and not any uh, false god, no other god, and certainly no graven image that represents another god. He says, you shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children in the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Not a remarkable thing right here in the Old Testament. It, it identifies the group that receives the blessing of God. I show steadfast love to thousands, an innumerable host 
God told Abraham, you can't number the stars, you can't number the grains of the sands of the sea, neither can you number your descendants who by faith will believe in who? In Christ. And he quotes here uh, what has not been written yet, not been said yet in history, and that is the words of Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That is the identifying mark of a true believer. You keep the commandments of God, all of them. The one about stealing, the one about adultery, the one about all the rest of it. Especially these first two. So these men were Christians. They were believers in God and in His sovereign salvation, which is embodied in Christ. They believed in God's capacity to deliver. In fact, that's what they, they come along here to say. They want to tell the king that uh, we don't need to bring this to trial. We don't need to answer this matter. There doesn't need to be a back and forth, a cross-examination. And they, in effect, says we are guilty as charged. And if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. They testify to the greatness of God, the power of God to deliver. And that's a true power. And God truly does deliver. In fact, He's going to deliver them. In fact, what they're doing here is they're becoming witnesses. And Isaiah had said to the people of Israel, you are my witnesses to my true power and my uniqueness and all the rest that God Almighty is. You are my witnesses. And Jesus, when He sent out His disciples, says, you shall be witnesses unto me. And in the, the Greek language, when Jesus said it, and, and it was recorded that way, the word witness is the same as the word martyr. In fact, it would be better translated martyr because that would be just a transliteration of the Greek word. So a witness is not someone that just swears an oath or says he saw something or testifies to truth. Certainly does that. But he is someone who's willing to in the words of King Nebuchadnezzar later on, offer up his body. A witness is someone who stands for something that's right, but it's not just within the recesses of his own soul. He actually physically behaves and acts out in his body his witness and his loyalty to the Lord. This is a passage really about facing martyrdom. And the early church faced martyrdom from the very beginning. And Jesus talks about it, the disciples talked about it, and the disciples experienced it. Our problem, I think, in our church, the reason, one of the reasons we're so weak and, 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 and we just haven't really considered these things, I know I haven't, because we just haven't seen the challenge. We just haven't seen people executed in our midst, in our countries, brought before the courts, accused of treason, accused of disloyalty, accused of being some, someone who is out of sync with the, with, with the popular opinion or the government's orders and bringing them into complete martyrdom. We just haven't seen that. Thank God for our Christian heritage and our, our Puritan background and our reasonably Christian founding of this country. All of our liberties are all have been planted in and firmly placed in the law that is above the law. The law of God. Our justice system comes from Sinai. It doesn't come from Robespierre or someone else. It comes from the actual revealed will of God for His creatures. And so we've lived in a Christian nation in many ways. 
This has been a Christian nation. We know that. We recognize it. And because of that, we haven't seen persecution. We've not seen severe persecution, threats to our life and to our liberty. And we've not seen martyrdom. I think we are looking ahead unless things change to where that'll change. There'll be many Christians who will be charged with such crimes as treason, with uh, such uh, horrible charges of being misanthropes and enemies of humanity and deniers of science and all sorts of, of laws that can be easily inscripturated into the code of the land and you will stand guilty. The evidence will convict you. They won't say a word about God. They won't say a word about idolatry. They won't say a word about any of these things that we talk about. You'll just be executed because you didn't bow down to the sovereign of the land. So you have to make up your mind. Who is your sovereign? The title asks, who will deliver you? But listen to their, to their statement here. It's really, really interesting. It says, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace. He didn't say God would deliver them. He said, God's able. But he says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Well, the Lord did deliver them from the fiery furnace. But in order to deliver them out of the king's hand, he would have had to go ahead and let them burn. And then you're delivered. When you pass through the fiery trial, the ordeal that is death, you're out from under the control of the kingdom of man. And if you're one of God's, you're in His eternal, blessed presence in anticipation of His kingdom. There's a way that God can deliver us from this. It may be through the pathway of martyrdom. I, I just can't believe I'm saying that. I dread it, but I think that this is proper perspective for a Christian to at least think about all these things. He said, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They just told the king flat out, and that's when he got really angry. He was filled with fury, and he expressed himself. And so they, they put him in... Uh, they put the, the, the men up for execution immediately. Did a couple things. They brought in some people to bind them. The language here is they bound them as they were. They were in their royal clothes, their turbans, their, their garb. It's interesting this, what they had. They had to own stockings. <laughs> I read a whole discussion about when did stocking wear for men come into you know, the culture and all that. They bound them. And, and, of course, that's, that's what the victim is. The victim in the Old Testament, the animal placed on the altar, was bound. Christ, when he went to Pilate to stand before Pilate for his trial and execution, was bound. Liberty is the first thing to go. Then death. And they, it says, and they ordered the furnace heated seven times. That means extremely overheated. And then some of the men were to, to take them, and they bound them and threw them in the fiery furnace with their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments. And the king's order was urgent. The fire overheated. The flame of fire killed the men who, walked, who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the fiery furnace. They wouldn't bow down, but they went down anyway. 
And that's the consequences of the decision when it comes to it between God in government, Caesar, and God's kingdom. You're going to go down. And that's what they did. They were thrown into the ultimate. They were not spared. They were not in any way... uh, uh, They didn't go easy on them at all. They gave them the full brunt of the punishment. And then you know the phenomenal scene there where uh, the king says, didn't we throw three men in? And they said, certainly, O king, we threw three in. He said, but I I see four men unbound walking in the midst of fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. No burning, no consuming, no coughing and choking from, from the flame and from the smoke. They were free now. And they're walking in the furnace. And there's a fourth man there. And some have, have said that it uh, is a pre-incarnate Christ. That Christ himself was with his martyrs, just like Jesus promised to be with his people. Just like Jehovah had said, I will go with you through the water and through the flame. God was with them there in this presence. If it was Christ, and I have no problem that I believe Christ is uh, manifested from time to time in a Christo uh, 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 appearance but even if it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar called it an angel and the scriptures have said that God would give his angels charge over these so that no harm would come so that debate can resolve itself either way even if it was an angel or if it was the pre-incarnate Christ it was God's manifest presence and his protection of them in the flame. And then finally here, if they came out, their head was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, the, the, bound, the binding had disappeared, it had been burned off, no smell of smoke. And then the king answers. And uh, uh, in his anger, uh, he said to his servants, uh, Blessed be the God... And this is an admission on his part, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who did these things, trusted in him, they trusted in God, they set aside the king's command, and they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And then, of course, you see he made a decree, and it was the same threatening decree he had made with in the case of earlier with, uh, with Daniel and those that couldn't interpret the dream, he was going to tear them from limb to limb and, and so forth. But interesting little place, and we'll quit there at the end of the chapter, verse 29. He says, but there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. This was a direct recantation of his scoff. His scoff at first had been, there's no God that can deliver you. And he admits, well, there's no other God that can deliver. I remember singing a song great robustly in my little Baptist church growing up. He is able to deliver thee. He is able, he is able to deliver thee. And that's exactly what Christ is able to deliver. He has delivered. He's delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of the dear son. And you can go through the whole gospels and the gospel message. And when Christ talks about the kingdom, it's delivered. I came to preach liberty to the captives, to declare the, 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 the jubilee of the king, the great rejoicing of the king. 
One of the reasons we can't go for that worship service that the government puts in front of us to bow down and worship the government is we're reserving ourselves for a bigger, better worship service in heaven where we gather around the Lamb and worthy is the Lamb to receive all the honor and praise that we can possibly imagine. And that's really true. We may be facing a day when we are at that crisis. Are we, have we made up our mind already to at least keep the first two commandments? We may get in trouble for keeping some of the others. If we may insist on, thou shalt not commit adultery too much, we're in trouble. That goes against the law of the land. And on and on you can go. Thou shalt not covet. The whole economic system of welfare is based upon envy and covetousness. In fact, it's the politics of envy. The whole notion of redistribution of wealth. The Bible says God's in charge of wealth. I am Lord thy God which giveth thee wealth. And for the state to be in charge as to who gets what and so forth, no matter how fair it may seem and no, no matter how much it's justified, it's still a violation of the 10th commandment. A government violation of the 10th commandment. And on and on we could go. We could go through all the commandments and see in which way. But are we, are we, have we resolved that we're going to go with God? We're going to bow down to Him only. We're going to serve Him. And we're going to serve Him. We're not just going to sit around and bite our fingernails and tremble. We're going to serve Him gladly and, until He calls us home. Whether He calls us through the fire, through the flood, through the air, Ever how it is, we're going to serve Him. Let's sing together. Stand if you would.